This is Kim Richmond, president of ASMAC, and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of one of our monthly luncheon presentations, recorded at Catalina's Jazz Club in Hollywood. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives in music. It's my pleasure to bring up one of our busy members, Mr. Don Peek, who will moderate and introduce today's special guest. Don? The Pope died and he went to heaven. And St. Peter was showing him around. And they took him to a very nice Spanish house with a little courtyard. And the Pope said, well, I'm, I'm just a, a Pope. I don't need a whole house. And St. Peter said, listen, Your Holiness, this is for you. This is for eternity. You will live here. And the Pope looked up on the hill, and there was a pink house, kind of like his, but bigger. And the Pope said, well, who lives up there? And St. Peter said, well, that's Duke Ellington. <laughs> and the Pope said, well, I think he was a musician. And St. Peter said, yes, he was. So they continued the looking around, and the Pope says, well, Duke Ellington, I think he had an orchestra, but, but I think his house is bigger than mine. And St. Peter said, well, yes, Your Holiness, that's Duke Ellington's house. So finally, the Pope says, well, he was a musician, and I was the Pope. And St. Peter says, Your Holiness, we have several Popes up here. There's only one Duke Ellington. <laughs> So there's only one Mike Post. Hello, hello. So I was, I guess I was 17, maybe I was 16. And I just started playing the guitar. And there was this place down on the Pico Boulevard called Mamas. And I remember it was on a corner. And I, I was like a beginner. I could, I could play a few notes, but I played them with gusto. And I noticed there was this cool guy that kept coming in. And uh, I would be standing on the stage of Mamas and he'd be right there. And I was studying, I was, love, love B.B. King. And, and there's a thing where you can play a G and then play the prime G up on the second string and with some vibrato. And that's a thing that I just really love to do. And I noticed that this person down there used to really dig that. And his name was Mike Post. And he was 15 years old. And here we are now. And Mike, I, I want to tell you how honored ASMAC is that you came out because I know that you live in a cave and you, you don't normally see people. So the fact that you have honored us, and I truly mean this, that you've honored us by, by coming here. And uh, there's so many things, but first I want to play a little audio. Is, is there a human being back there? Oh, there's Milton. So we're going to play this. Jimmy. Oh, it's Jimmy. Mm -hmm. Melbourne. Oh, my God. Blue. 
What the hell's that? Classical gas. So, Mike Post went in the Army. And I don't know what you did in the Army. What did you do in the Army? I was Army? in the Air National Guard. I okay. I stayed out of Vietnam. Good. I did too. I was in the U.S. Coast Guard. But my mother got a phone call from Mike Post's mother saying, listen, Mike's coming out of the service and we want to get Mike some work. And mom told me, hey, you know, get, get Mike. So we started with Sonny and Cher and things happened. <laughs> and we played sessions. A lot of things happened. But... Then, Mason Williams recorded this. Mike posted this arrangement. And, and all of us were stunned. And we all knew at that moment that this was a very dangerous man. So why did you do that? Why did you yeah. bring that brass band and go up a third, minor third? What the hell was that? That was uh, a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> well, he... Mason Williams was a head writer on the Smothers Brothers show, and I had produced the first edition, and I had arranged, just dropped in and produced all that album, and did a bunch of arrangements on, on the first first edition album. And I had this, I guess it was an idea about orchestrated rock and roll, you know? So when they, uh, Mason was managed by the uh, same guys that managed the first edition. They came to me and said, we got this guy, he's a genius. Uh, he's a head writer on our television show for the Smothers Brothers. And, uh, you know, we want you to record him. So I met with the guy. He was, he, he wasn't a genius, but he was. <laughs> Ray Charles was a genius. Ray he, Charles he, was he, a he, genius. B.B. King was a genius. Nah, <laughs> anyway, uh, he had some okay songs, but he had this one thing, you know, all in A minor that was just cool. So I'm messing around with it and I'm thinking, okay, this is, and he says, you know, we're, I want to record it with piano, bass, drums, and guitar. And I said, I got this idea, you know, I've been, and we need a big orchestra for some of your vocal things. Why don't you let me try this thing? And he goes, okay. So then in the middle of it, I said, thought, God, you know, it's, it, it's good, but it just keeps doing the same thing. Yeah. And it needs a, a bridge, it needs a release, it needs a B section, you know? So, uh, me being who I was at yeah. the time, I didn't ask him, I just did it, you know? And, uh, you know, Vesta Rosa, Dave Duke, and Bill Henshaw, I think, on tubing horns, which, David Duke had turned me on to, you know, I didn't know anything. It's a Wagnerian horn. A Wagnerian tuba horn, exactly. You know, speaks like a trumpet, but sounds like a French horn. A little faster. So, uh, you know, so at any rate, uh, that's how that happened. Wow. Well, we all knew that we were in trouble. And so now, you met Pete Carpenter. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about Pete because mm -hmm. When I started scoring the Night Rider sessions in 1982, I did 77 Night Riders, and we had a big orchestra. 
and you guys were over in another studio on Universal's lot, and Pete would come into my sessions and conduct just for fun. I would say, hey, Pete, get up there. And he would get up there, and, and, and you know, we, we were just like a, a club. You know, we, how lucky we were. But, but you said something really interesting to me one day. You said, Don, listen, I do the strings. Pete's the rock and roller. Do you remember <laughs> yeah, telling me that? Uh, yeah, sure. The, the cool thing about our partnership, we did about 1,700 hours of TV together. We worked in the same room. He would plunk around. I would write. I would plunk around. He would write. All of his friends, of course, Pete was a year older than my father. So all of it, and Pete was a big band guy, had been with Kenton and a bunch of different people and worked a lot for Earl Hagen as a, as a composer and had a, a large background in arranging and in composition. And all of Pete's friends thought that I was a hummer and that Pete really was writing everything. And uh, all of my friends thought I was coming up with the hit licks and this old guy was just tagging along with me and we both would just laugh and laugh and laugh because we literally wrote the stuff together. And 1,700 hours and 20 years or however long it was and we never had a contract. I don't know who wrote what. I don't know whose licks or whose. We never had a disagreement, never had an unkind word between us. All we did was laugh and have a great time. And then, you know, a lot of, by the way, there's a pretty good band right here. And a lot of the, you know, times that we were making music, it was made so much better by Danny and Gail and Mike and, and it, it's the musicians, you know, not that we didn't write well, and not that we didn't come up with good stuff, but we were in it. Talk about being in a club. We were in L.A. with the best players that have ever been assembled anywhere. Obvious. It's just Amen. obvious. Amen. Yeah. That is so. So, bless. I know he's up there looking at us. Um, I want to back up a little because I cannot just wave my hand and say a lot happened. So now we're, we're playing for Sonny and Cher. Let's back up to Sonny and Cher. And at lunch we were talking with Mike Lang, and talking about Dr. John, the night tripper, who was Mac Revenack at the time. And Mac had, um, had an unfortunate encounter with some substances. And so there were times that he was a little high. And um, President Kennedy was assassinated in 63. 64, we were up on Sunset Boulevard, and it, it, what was it called, It's Boss? It's Boss. Used to be Moulin Rouge, now it's the Comedy Club. As Mike reminded me, he, Mike has this amazing memory. What he just said about 1,700 hours, he can also tell you how many miles he's run so far. Mm -hmm. I know it's once around the earth. No, uh, one and a half, yeah, 35,000. So, so Mike knows. Anyway, so we're standing backstage, getting ready to go on, and, and Sonny Bono comes up to us, and says, listen, Mrs. Kennedy wants us to come back and play for her in New York City. And we were all like, oh my God, oh my God, we're gonna go play for Jacqueline Kennedy? And Mike's standing there, and I'm here, and Dr. John is here. And Dr. John leans over to me and says, them politicians, the scurviest dudes on the set. <laughs> and that was Dr. John's hit on the 
So tell us about New York, because you remember everything. Yeah, we, we uh, so we got on a, uh, Green and Stone were Sonny and Cher's managers. It was my 21st birthday. And uh, they commissioned or rented or did something to get all the seats in first class on this TWA jet. We go to, uh, and we apply, we play the gig and then we go to a, uh, you know, just go to a, a, an all-nighter and we go bing, you know, red eye is exactly what it was. We get it there in the morning and we go stay at the Essex house and uh, <laughs> don't you gonna tell him? <laughs> so you know he and I are we're, you know roommates yeah we're, 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 and we're playing in the room you know we're you know, just screwing around and so I go I'm taking a shower he goes okay I'm in the shower my eyes are closed and everything all of a sudden a whole bucket of ice water comes over <laughs> the and Pete goes welcome to the road okay so, so, so we end up going to the uh, to a rehearsal because the gig was for 19 people, uh, nine couples and Mrs. Kennedy, a year after the present. So she'd been in mourning for a year. Now she's gonna come out and have a party. So we're playing in this living room. So we gotta figure out how we're not gonna kill these people in this living room with this pretty big band. And uh, so we go there to do a sound check and everything and Matt, is sitting, we're on a break, and he's sitting, and there's a bookcase, and he starts pulling down these little books, and he's looking at them, and they're gold-bound, and all of a sudden, the pages are falling apart, and he goes, uh, this is bullshit right here, this, these books falling apart, and I went, what is that? He goes, who is this guy, Chaser? What is this Chaser person here? And I go, Mac, Chaucer, put it away. <laughs> 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 so we, we play we play the gig and you know scoundrels we're scoundrels you know we're we're just we don't belong there you know so, so, so when it's all over mrs kennedy who was just so beautiful bigger than life but really a pro you know she came and she met each one of us and it was like there was nobody else in the world you know like really somebody that's polished like that that political thing, they just make you feel like you're the most important person. She looks at my 12 string, she goes, oh, lead belly, right, 12 string? Oh, you know, how, does, how does this woman know this stuff, you know? So, Don was very nice to her, and very, you know, but Mac is next, and he grabs her hand and kisses Mademoiselle, and he starts speaking Cajun French to her, and she right away knew he was from New Orleans, and she's speaking in French, and he's in love, you know. She goes up home, he goes, as she goes, he goes, I'm nailing that later. <laughs> so now, so now, so, so now we pack up because we played and, and then the lady of the house who owned Gimbel's department store, they very rich people, we do not belong there. So, no, you guys are staying, there isn't that many of us and we need dancing partners, we're gonna dance, you know. Okay, so we're dancing with the rich people. And then <laughs> the lady of the house's daughter, there with her husband, she goes, wait a second, did anybody see the other one that matches this one? And it was about this long, this earring with all these diamonds. And right away, Matt goes, we gotta get out of here. 
<laughs> the, the one Mac Rabinac story I didn't tell at the table, being on the gig with him, we're in a, in a Sonny and Cher date, Barney Kessel, Don, me, David Cohen, Max playing guitar. Not playing piano, playing guitar. And he, I, I was his ride, he didn't drive. So, so when I picked him up this morning, he was really high. I mean, just seriously on a nod. He couldn't stay awake no matter what. So we're doing, I forget what song it is, but it was A, B, A, B, C, A, B. We start playing the thing, and he keeps nodding out. He's just really high, and he keeps nodding out. I keep, yeah. wake up, wake up. So finally we get ready, we rehearsed enough, we get ready to do it. He goes to sleep at the 17th bar in the C section. And <laughs> at the 17th bar, the third time we play the C section, he wakes up and never stops. He just never missed a beat. He missed all the song, but he never, <laughs> never. He was probably the most innately talented musician that I've ever known. I mean, he could, if, if it made a sound, he could play it and play it better than almost anybody. Just amazing guy. So Mike has done a lot of amazing things. And I just want to make a quick reference to the, the golf club out of Toluca Lake there. Not because of the story we'll tell about the guitar guy, but being Jewish and a minority, and being in a world where there are certain places where we're not welcome, um, Mike did something amazing. I hope you don't mind me bringing this up, but Mike went in to Toluca Lake and he said, I'd like to join your club. And they looked at his credentials, and of course he was, was financially sound, but they were trying to figure a way to prevent him from joining. I know, tell, you mind telling the story? Yeah, it's not, you have it a little wrong. It's, oh, I'm sorry, I, I'm I, sorry. I, the first time I was invited to think about joining Lakeside, which is a great club, it's a wonderful club. Um, I went to grammar school, junior high and high school with Tom Selleck. His father was the, and I did the music for Magnum. Pete and I did the music for Magnum. Um, Bob Selleck, Tom's father, who I knew growing up, you know, same neighborhood, um, was the president. So the guy that wanted me to join, a guy named Don Belisario, producer, uh, said, why don't you join? I said, I think there's a, I think it's, I don't think that, you know, they want uh, people with the uh, Jewish heritage. And he said, come on. I said, no, it sounds stupid, but I think that I think that. So he said, well, let me call Bob. And instead of calling me on the phone, Mr. Selleck uh, sent a message through Belisario that maybe I'd be happier, happier at Hillcrest or at, at El, El Cap. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, you know, that ain't so good. So I was double pissed, you know, I mean, really pissed because, you know, I'd never, actually have never suffered any anti-Semitism that I've ever been aware of, you know, I'm a middle-class Jewish And it's L.A., we're in, in L.A., LA. You know, I'm a musician, it doesn't matter. Can you play? I'm, yeah, can you play? Yeah. So at any rate, um, 
10, 15 years later, I'm out in my front yard in Toluca Lake, and my next door neighbor says to me, why aren't you a member of Lakeside? I tell him the story. And he goes, that's bullshit. You're the guy, now's the time. So a guy called me up named John Carnes, who's a friend of mine to this day. He says, hello, Mike, it's John Carnes. I'm a chairman of the membership committee at Lakeside. I said, yeah. He said, about this Jew thing. Oh, 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 Jesus. <laughs> and I went, right. he goes, calm down, calm down. You're the guy, now's the time. And I said, you know what? That's great. I'd, I'd like to do that as long as everybody understands that I'm not going to be real happy if, there's, if this becomes an issue. It's America. It's, this shouldn't be an issue. And it, it's never been an issue. And now there's probably... 50 Jewish, 7,500 Jewish members. It doesn't matter anymore. And I guess I was a little bit of the icebreaker, but it was you only, you, were. you know, I think it was because it was post, not Pustelnik or Postel, <laughs> probably, and you know, whatever. So I love that story. Yep. So now Mike's at the club, and there's a fella who is kind of ill-dressed, unkempt, and Mike assumes he's a caddy, but it turns out he's golfing and digging holes in the ground, divots big enough to drive through. Yeah, this is on the, on please the practice. Tell, please tell a story. Yeah, it's on the driving range, and I'm out there practicing, and there's this guy. I walk up, and he's standing by where the caddies are, and he really looks scruffy. I mean, really sketchy. And he's staring at me, smiling, and I'm going, oh, Jesus. I don't, you know. <laughs> So I go out and I start hitting balls, and this guy comes out and he's still staring at me. And he walks about four or five places down, and he starts. It isn't even a golf swing; it's some sort of other thing, you know. And saw it's coming. Finally, and I'm going, "Don't come over and talk to me, please." Don't. He comes over and goes, "Excuse me." I said, "Yeah, hi." And he says, "Hi." He said, "Listen, we actually met a long time ago," and. I said, oh, I'm sorry, I don't remember it. He said, yeah. I said, well, where? And he said, uh, well, it was, uh, you know, at United in Studio B, and I was in Studio B, you were in Studio A, and I said, oh, great. And I said, and I figured, he's not a caddy, he must, are you a new member? He says, yeah, I am. And I said, well, that's great. I said, well, um, you were working in Studio B? He said, yeah, I have a band, we're from Pasadena, and we were there, and you know, and you, but I knew who you were, and I just wanted to see how the pros did it, and blah, 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 blah. And I'm going, God, I don't know who this guy is. And so I said, well, I hope we get to play together, and I, I, I said, T tell me your last name again. He says, Van Halen. And I, <laughs> so I grabbed him right by the shirt, and I pulled him, and I said, listen, I said, do you recognize me from my world tours or my videos or, you know? He's looking at me and I said, buddy, I write music for television. You changed that thing that I started out playing. You changed it. I said, you're actually a genius and I'm just lucky to be in the band. So nice talking with you. I'll play golf with you anytime you want. Eddie Van Halen. But you also produced an album with him. I did. I, I, I don't know that I should actually take credit for producing an album. What happened was we became friends and Ed said, I want to do, I want to do an album sober. And I said, and I, it, well, that's a big deal for him. 
And I said, okay, I'll help you do that. But, so what I really did was, you know, the, the word producer can have so many different meanings mm -hmm. and the job can entail so little or so much. And what I did was have him, help him to do an album without being, you know, messed up. And uh, it's not a very good album, but he did it. And, I'm, and I was happy to be part of it, you know. And he's still a genius any, any, way, you, any way you figure it, you know. It's funny, I, I sometimes don't recognize people when I see them, you know, I, I'll, I'll go blank and uh, try to figure a way around it when I, when I get confronted. I want to thank everybody, by the way, for coming. I know we have a couple of new members here, and uh, I think this is a great organization, so it's good that you all are here. Um, so now, I had some experiences with Mike. I, got, I was lucky to, to stay in touch, and our careers uh, varied, but we, we ran parallel. And now, I know that Mike is running. I know that he's a runner, and I know that I wanted to hang out some. And, and I came to Mike and I said, look, I'd really like to run with you guys. And they said, look, we're serious runners, man. We run marathons. You know, we, we eat the same food. We're like a team. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, is anything coming up I could join you? And Mike says, you know, in Las Vegas, there's a half marathon. It's about five, four months away. And he said, Don, you're gonna have to work hard to stay up with us, you're gonna to have to work out, you're gonna to have to run every day, and if you figure you can keep up, you know, we'll, we'll take you along. Well, four months later, five in the morning, I'm being loaded into a bus in Las Vegas and driven out of town with a bunch of crazies wearing shorts and, and what we call a wife beater, which is a, you know, a t-shirt, were wrapped in garbage bags because it is so bloody cold and they drop us off in the desert and drive away. <laughs> and we're all standing there with our knees knocking, waiting for the start of this race. And we had to run 14 point what? 13.1. 13.1 miles into Las Vegas. So there we are, the, finally the starting gun goes off. We throw down the garbage bags. And I'm running along thinking, is this a good idea? <laughs> why am I, why? But of course I love Mike. And I, so we're running along together and we finished, we did well. But um, we go into, the, into town now, and of course that's the great part. You run and you end up in civilization and people are cheering, you know. And there was this one tall guy ahead of me and I said, I'm gonna catch that bastard. And that was my motivation for the, for the end of the race. I just focused on that guy and I passed him. So now we get cleaned up. It's now like 1.30 in the morning. The casinos are really quiet. I find myself sitting alone with Mike Post at a table with a very mean-looking Asian dealer. These, these ladies are inscrutable. They are terrifying. And they sit there and they throw cards at you. And I suddenly hear Mike Post say to her, and I'm not gambling, I'm terrified of gambling. And Mike says to her, you're going to run out of bad cards before I run out of money. <laughs> Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah. Well, I was playing for 10 bucks, you know. <laughs> I mean, she's not, at a certain point, I'm going to run out of money. You yeah, know? But, but she was tough. Yeah. You know, um, one thing I want to talk about is arranging. I mean, the, I, the idea of arranging. And um, when I started writing charts. I was really young. 
I was 19 the first time anybody hired me to actually arrange something pure and not something I was trying to produce or anything else. And it was for a drummer named, uh, uh, who's the guy that did Teen Beat? Sandy Nelson. Sandy Nelson, Sandy right. Teen Beat Nelson. So it was a producer that was producing a Sandy Nelson album, all instrumental stuff. So, and it was mainly hits that have been vocal hits that they were gonna do instrumentally. So I, it was a little bit like a laboratory because I got to do all kinds of weird stuff. And I loved it so much, it was so much fun. It, it seemed so creative to me. And the way it relates to like, we started this little conversation playing classical gas and, and he asked me, you know, you're an A minor, how'd you go to D flat? I mean, how does that, how did that happen? And the truth is, I always thought of arranging as just more fingers or more strings. I just thought of them as licks. I didn't actually go to school. I went to, to Valley College for one semester. And, and then I went on the road. And then I started playing as a studio guy, you know. Um, and as a studio guy, I got to work for Gene Page mm. and, and, you know, for Artie, for a lot of people that could really, really write, could really orchestrate, could really arrange. And it, it became a goal of mine to be good at it. So I started with books. And, and the most important book to me at, in the beginning was Mancini's book. Uh, and both of them were great. I mean, both of both how-to books were wonderful. You know, and the first the first one was mainly, you know, four trumpets, five saxophones. Mm. You know, here's here's the way you lock that stuff together. And and I didn't know anything about it. I I, I did, you know had no awareness of it. And it helped me so much. And then when I met Pete Carpenter right after classical gas. He walked up to me at, at Jimmy Bowen's golf tournament and he said, hey, I'm Pete Carpenter. I said, oh, I know who you are, you know, trombone player and blah, blah, blah. And he said, you know, me and all my jazz friends, we hate rock and roll. And I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> and, and he said, but I listened to that record you, that you arranged and produced at classical gas, it's great. And I, before I get too old and I turn into a you know, a cranky old guy said, I need to learn something about this. Could we get together and maybe trade some info? And I said, yeah. And the first thing that happened is he handed me a book on serial composition by a Professor Connitz who had taught at SC and was a student of Nadia Boulanger. So all of a sudden, and I went, well, I, well, I know about the row. I know about this 12-tone. This stuff and then I opened that book and I went oh shit this is deep water here this is <laughs> now now we're talking you know so the progression for all this was so natural and so helped by a lot of other people and including Don you know I don't know if you remember but I've 
I told you early on, my reading's got to get better. I mean, I can read, but I'm just not that good at it, you know? And you said, well, come over. And you opened up uh, the Clouset book. Yeah, yeah. Clarinet book. Clarinet book with these clarinet duets. And I went, oh, this is good. And we started to play and read together. And I'm going, I mean, because nothing laid right on the guitar. It was yeah. made for the clarinet. And it was like hard. It was hard. And starting with Don and a few, Dale Holcomb and a few yeah. other people, yeah. Mike Rabini for sure, I've, I guess I've been mentored, tutored, whatever you want to call it, by a lot of people. And uh, learned a tremendous amount being partners with Pete. I mean, a ton, because I'd never, you know, I heard Firebird and I pulled that apart and I heard, you know, the New World Symphony and I pulled that apart. But, you know, Pete turned me on to a whole room full of stuff to listen to. And at the end of the day, here I am, 72. What? Yeah, you know, <laughs> not 15 anymore. And honest to God, I still think the most fun you can possibly have is orchestrating. I still think really? that that's, because it's like architecture. Yeah. It's, it, and my father was an architect, and that, I, I honestly think that of all the stuff that I supposedly can do as a composer and a conductor and all this jazz, and I, and I, I think I'm good at that, but sitting down and orchestrating, not playing it into a black box, not quanting it, not, you know, and then going to the studio with Danny Ferguson or you know, or Lang, or you know, and Gail. If you need a, if you need a harp, and, and only the best player that I've ever seen um, at it. You know, you getting to work with those kind of musicians, with that architecture, is the best thing I've ever done in my whole life. So that's aside from you know being dear friends with Don. The real reason I'm here is this association is a group of arrangers. What, what a cool thing. What, what, a, what a cool thing to do. Bravo. I'm going to ask, Milton, are you still back there? Oh, there he is. He's running. All right, uh, I'm going to play the second audio cut. And then I have some questions. It is. Uh, I'm proud to say. I'm happy. I'm proud too because it's amazing, and it has it's funky and it has soul and it's 
But then there's a strange sound in the background. And yeah, there's a strange sound. So um, I know that there was in the skiffle band, you know, like tie me kangaroo down and, mm. and does your does your chewing gum lose its flavor mm -hmm. on the bedpost? Mm -hmm. In the skiffle band, there was a guy with a piece of metal, mm -hmm. and he would go. Mm -hmm. How did you get that sound on that? Well, that's actually a distorted guiro. Oh, it's a guiro. Yeah, yeah, distorted though. Yeah, and and in in octaves. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I took their sample and that's and sound design, yeah, yeah. serious sound design. <laughs> So that's you playing guitar. Well, I yeah, figured it was. Yeah, it Damn. Me and a little awesome. black Kramer. Oh, man. With a Floyd. Yeah. yeah. Amazing, amazing. Well, you've, you, you did, in my time that I've known you, I've been around you a few times, I've heard you have conversations. And I remember a lady called you one day and said, I want you to score my TV show. And you, I just happened to be in the room, and I heard you say to her, well, I'd be happy to score your show, but only if I can score all your shows. And this is Mike Post, the businessman. This is the music business. There's two words there. And besides orchestration, you were a brilliant businessman. You opened up a, a video editing lab because you said, well, I'm working on TV. Why don't I edit TV? I mean, please explain to us about the, the dynasty or as John would say, the dynasty. And, uh, and, and how, because I'm, I'm, I'm completely flabbergasted at this, this thing that you built. Where's Vanacore? <laughs> uh. <laughs> okay, so, it's, first of all, I've never made a musical decision based on money. Really? Never. Nice. I've never taken a gig because of the money. I've never turned down a gig because of the money. And I've never sat there any kind of way and went, oh no, I'll make more money if I do this. Uh-huh. Like Jay Graydon used to charge by the note. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. It's true. <laughs> um, <laughs> I never heard that. Um, but. You know, I mean, I made I made a lot of money, but the, the I had no control over that. The only thing I had control over, I have a big brother. He's five and a half years older than me, better athlete, much tougher. When I got the Andy Williams show, I became the music director of the Andy Williams show when I was 24. He grabbed me by the shirt and said, hey, stupid. You actually don't know anything. You don't have an education. You know you're good at this music thing, obviously, but but other than that, you're pretty much an idiot. So <laughs> so so here's what we're gonna do. I said, okay, bud. What are we gonna do? He said, you're gonna give me 20% of your gross every year, and I'm gonna put it in the most vanilla stuff. No, you know, no stocks, nothing, nothing more risky because you're in the biggest crap game in the casino, and we're not gonna take any winnings from there and go gamble with it. We're gonna take it and protect it. And I went, okay. And, I mean, good businessman? Not really, I, I didn't wanna live in Beverly Hills or Bel Air. 
So I stayed in North Hollywood, Studio City. Um, you know, my brother said, you know, you got no contract, you got, you're only as good as your last gig, so pay cash for everything, save your money, live below your means, and, and give me 20% and I'll put it in, in stuff where you're not gonna lose it. And 20% of your gross when you're paying, you know, 40 or 50% in taxes, that's actually, a, it doesn't leave you a whole lot to live like a king, right? right. So, which is fine. And then at a certain point, you know, I said, okay, I'm a composer and I, I'm going to Universal and we're showing up there to do our stuff. And Scotty, excuse me, Scotty's at the gate. Yeah, we, yeah, Scotty's we, at the gate, Scotty's exactly. And, and I'm getting, I'm, I'm going, I'm not getting any publishing from these guys. Yeah. Okay, I'm, well, I'm still getting composition and they're paying us well. Pete and I are happy. And then Steve Cannell leaves Universal and becomes the deficit financer, meaning he bankrolls each television show starting with The Greatest American Hero. I'm going, wow. So I call Cannell up and I say, hey, what do you got for the budgets? How much are you? He goes, I don't know. My best friend calls me back the next day. He says, oh, we got 30 grand per show. I said, good, give it to me. He said, what do you mean give it to you? I said, don't pay me a piece of it as a composer. Just give me the whole budget and I'll deliver the musicians, the copyists, the, 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 the rentals and everything else. And I'll go make a deal at Evergreen or I'll go, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out. And he goes, oh no, I can't let you do that. I said, really, why? He said, well, suppose we don't like a cue and we want to change something and everything. I said, when was the last time you changed anything I wrote? He goes, well, you're right, but you're, you're taking a big risk. I said, so are you. And he goes, yeah, you're right. So I became a packager. It really wasn't to make money. It was to be able to say what studio we recorded in, to be able to say who the musicians were and not have any pressure. God bless her, I love Sandy, but there were <laughs> No, I do, I mean, I do, but I wanted, it was musical, I wanted to, be able to be the guy that got to say how it was gonna sound. That's honestly what I wanted to do. And from that, if writing music for episodic TV was the hub, then I just started covering every spoke on the hub. That's how I met Vanacore. You know, I, uh, we had this show for, for Cannell uh, called Silk Stocking, another one called Renegade, and there was just too much work. Pete and I had 10 shows, so we had a whole bunch of guys to, to help us. Uh, one thing I am proud of, uh, never ghosted a queue in my life. Everybody that, that wrote anything for me and Pete or with us got credit on the screen, got credit on the cue sheet. You know, we never ripped anybody off, and I'm, I'm proud of that. And at any rate, so I just covered every spoke. Eventually ended up building a studio. The studio ended up becoming a post-production business because I went to my partner, Steve Cannell, and my partner, Stephen Bochco. All right, I'm not so dumb. I, I'm, I'm hooked up with the two biggest producers in the history of the thing, and I go, guys, let's build a studio together. Let's 
you know, let's edit and dub and do all your stuff here. Okay, that's maybe that was smart, but the truth is, um, it just it, it kind of just happened because of the music, not not because of wanting to make a lot of money. I, I you know, neither you or me or any of us started this thing to make money. That's true. You know, it's like they say about about uh, about professional poker players. It's a really, really hard way to make an easy living. <laughs> Being a musician, you know, hard way to make an easy living. And also, Mike Post has been a trailblazer, the first composer ever to have his name in the credits at the beginning of the show instead of the end of the show was Mike Post. And this he did for all of us. I mean, you've done some amazing things for composers. And plus, you know, I think Mike deserves a hand for, we're talking over here. Um, uh, I think that these guys that, that Mike has helped has give, put their names on the cue sheets. This is amazing, and I think he should have a hand for that. So there used to be a thing uh, downtown, and it was called Italian Musicians' Wives Charity Night. Tedesco, De Rosa, you know, every, okay. So I'm standing there with Pete, we just done Rockford Files. It was now a hit record. And I'm standing in line and I, to, get, to buy tickets to get a drink. And I look up and there's Henry Manson. And I'd met him one time on the Andy Williams show. He had come on as a guest, but he had been Andy's conductor four generations before me. Um, so I went up and I said, hi, Henry. I don't know if you remember me, Mike Post. And he went, oh, Jesus. I said, what? And he goes, I owe you a phone call. And I said, really? He goes, come over here. Yeah. He said, take my hands. I held his hands. He goes, look into my eyes. I went, yeah. I don't know what's coming. And he goes, I've been meaning to call you and say two words to you. And I said, what? You're next. And I just, I mean, I got big tears in my Aww. eyes, and I just went, God. And I said, number one, I hope you're right. He goes, oh, no, I'm right. And I said, number two, I hope I can help as many people as you've helped. I hope I can be as honorable with the music thing as you've been. And so thank you for applauding for just doing the right thing, for just trying to be moral about this. And, you know, I am proud. I've never been sued. I've never been deposed. I've never sued anybody. I've never deposed anybody. And I've never, you know, we hear about what a scurvy business Scurvy is. dudes. Yeah. What, what a bad, <laughs> I've never been screwed by anybody under any circumstances. You know, oh, maybe I didn't get the right accounting from a record company about this or about that, or maybe, you know, Universal didn't split the publish. Are you kidding me? I didn't start this to make money. I started this to make music. And all the good things that have happened, don't we all owe it to each other to spread that rather than all the poisonous, you know, you know, I never felt like anybody was competition. I felt like we were all in the same club. 
listen to this, and you guys will love this. <laughs> Two weeks ago, I go to the bowl to see John Williams conduct, Johnny. To me, he's Johnny. He's 12 years older than me, went to North Hollywood High, he's a North Hollywood guy, I've known him. I first met him when he did the Reavers, because Pete knew him real well. So I've known him a long time. So we go, we're both represented by Gorfain Schwartz, I'm there with Mike Gorfain and his wife, me and my wife, Snuffy Walden and his wife, okay? We're in a box, we see David do his thing, David Newman did the first half, good, really good. And then Johnny did the second half, killer, just killer, really good. So we, we go back, I hate going backstage, I always, just uncomfortable and embarrassed or whatever. You know, you stand there and then there's, you know, there's this movie star and that movie star and, you know, J.J. Abrams and all these, you know, big time people. And I'm just standing there, standing there, standing there, you know. And finally, Gorfain brings Johnny out and he goes, hey, Mike Post is here. And so they shuffle these other people, oh, Mike Post is here. John says two words to me. He goes, hey, baby. <laughs> and I go, well, I'm still in the band. I'm still, still in, in the, the band. band. <laughs> basically, you know, John is all legit, and you know, the coat and the tie, and oh, Mr. Williams, and everything. Bullshit, he's in a band, you know. <laughs> hey, baby, how are you? That's great. That's it, you know. Just lucky. Now, I have provided a microphone standing right there, and I request that if anyone has a question, please say it on the microphone so we can hear you and uh, we would love to answer any questions that any of you have. So um, I'm one of the uh, Mike Post disciples. So, uh, you know, if not for him, I don't get to do what I do and I get to help. I've got 50 or 75 composers working for me. And, um, you know, Mike taught me how to do it. I do it the way he told me how to do it. Um, one ask caps. Most performed music, underscore, and theme for the last nine years in a row. And, um, you know, Mike's been nothing but gracious, not only as a composer, as a man, as a mentor, and as a dear friend. So, thanks, Mike. Yeah, so now the name Vanacore reminds me of when I was playing with Ray Charles when he took me back to Wichita and we played with the symphony orchestra and Victor Vanacore was the pianist and conductor. Is that your brother? It is. Aha! Well, it was amazing. It was, it was Peter Torrey on drums, Benoit Gray on bass, I was playing guitar, Brother Ray, and a sea of toupees. <laughs> it was wonderful. And I remember that uh, Ray reached under the piano at one point and pulled out an alto saxophone and stood up and burned up a solo. I was stunned. So but now, so I want to talk about you and Ray Charles for one second. B.B. Um, King tells a story about when Brother Ray wanted him to do one of those country songs, because Ray loved, loved the country songs. And he had B come in, and he was sitting in Ray's office, and, and Brother Ray said, do you know this song? And B.B. said, I haven't heard of it. And Ray said, don't worry, I've had the music printed out for you. And B.B. King said to Ray, well, do me a favor. He said, do you mind turning the lights on? <laughs> so so uh, did Ray meet with you in the dark like that? So the uh, first, ep first episode I did of the Andy Williams show as the music director, you know, and I'm 23, 24, excuse me, 
24, but I, I, I'd won a Grammy for classical gas, and he was going on at eight o'clock. And the people that preceded me, you know, aside from Dave Grusin and Henry Mancini, but Alan and Jack, Danny's dad, I mean, the, the book was incredible. The arrangements were unbelievable. I learned a lot just going through there and looking at what these guys had done. So the first show, the main guest is Ray Charles. Now, at the time, I knew every lick, every key. I mean, I just had studied this guy. So um, I thought, okay, what can you do different that Ray Charles had never done? What can you, we're gonna do a medley. So I put together really good, I thought, 13 minutes, that's a whole act of a show. 13 minute medley. And my producers went for it. So we go over to RPM and writers, producers, everybody in this room. And Ray's sitting at his desk. Joe Adams is sitting oh, there. Oh, Joe. Slick Joe. So, <laughs> so, so we're all in there talking and they're doing Now I get introduced to them. And I'd already worked with a couple of blind artists. And so I was very comfortable with how it was with people that didn't see. So. Bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. Finally, I, I, I get up and I go. And I, it, it, I really was brave. I don't know why, but I was brave. And I walked over and I put my hand and I said, Ray. Yeah. I said, uh, is there some place where we can go and talk about music with a piano where I can show you what I'd like you to do? Who are you? I said, I'm the music director, Mike, Mike Post. Oh, yeah. I said, okay, yeah. am I leading or are you leading? He goes, well, whose motherfucking office is it? <laughs> <laughs> I said, you're leading. So we go. We go into that room off the side. You know, we had that little spinet. Yeah. And, and the bar. And he goes, you drink a 50-50? And I went, oh, my God. Is this drugs? I, what is, what's he talking about? Yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. I'm scared to death. You know? yeah. I said, well, what is it? He goes, half coffee, half bowls gin and a bunch of sugar. Oh, God. <laughs> I went, okay. Oh, oh my God. He hands me this drink, and I mean, it's just, this is oh. bad, oh. really bad, <laughs> but really good. You know, <laughs> two steps down, go, he goes, all right, son, what is it you want me to do? Ooh. You know, like, he just could be so mean. Oh, yeah. So I sat down, and I, I did my little blind boy bagel thing. And he's, you know, he's doing his, you know, and I could tell he dug it. And he goes, yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. You got the thing wrong in Georgia. It goes like this. And I went, oh, it does? Yeah. Oh. I went, oh. And he said, didn't hear that on the record, did you? And I went, no. Oh, that's it. right. So um, he goes, I don't do no medleys. Ooh. And, and I said, well, I know. Isn't it more correct to say you haven't done any medleys? <laughs> he went, he just shook his head. He goes, who are you again? <laughs> and he said, well, how did you get here? <laughs> and so, I think, well, isn't that exactly it? I yeah, said, yeah, how did yeah. you get here? I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm producer, yeah. first edition, and yeah. arranger, yeah. producer, classical gasser. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. I heard that. Okay, I'll do the medley. Did he really? Oh my God! Five minutes. That was great. That was great. So we're on the road with Ray Charles, and Ray is—he is very, very particular about time. 
and the drummer was Wilbert Hogan. I was 24, Ray was 34, and Hogan was a very serious jazz drummer. And one day, the promoter came up and said, listen, boys, before, you know, before you go on, Hogan, listen, there's a comedian today, and we'd like you to come out and play some pratfalls for the comedian. And Hogan walked right up to him, and he put his toes against his toes, and he put his nose against, and he said, I don't play no circus drums. <laughs> and the promoter just turned around and walked away. We never saw the guy again. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. It, it got to be that the drum chair was called the electric chair because Ray went through a lot of drummers. But this was not fair to Ray because Joe Adams, whom you refer to as Slick Joe Adams, was very fond of money. And he realized that Ray, not being able to see, you know, wasn't aware of who was in the orchestra. Ray knew every, every note of every arrangement, but he didn't know all the players all the time. So Joe started hiring younger players who played for less money. Unfortunately, they didn't play very well. And it made Ray, as he got older, more and more frustrated, and it was very sad, because he'd stop the band, oh, trumpet! Second trumpet, that's a D sharp there. I mean, he totally knew these charts. Oh, yeah. But so, yeah. so the reputation that Ray got at the end as being grumpy had to do with the fact that he was being tortured by these inexperienced musicians. Yeah, he, he was taking advantage of them. Yeah. But he was also extremely exacting, and he wanted guys with him that, you know, Vic knows more than anybody, that he wanted guys with him that he was comfortable with in the hang, so he didn't always have the he didn't always have the best guys with him, you know. Yeah, yeah. He wanted to hang. The, the original airplane, because you're a pilot, um, and I want you to talk about that for a second. Mike did the most wonderful thing. We're flying to Las Vegas to run this half marathon, and we're in the West Wind, and Mike says, "Don, get in the get in the right seat there." So they put the headphones on me. He says, "Okay, we're coming in for a landing, Don. So this button here is for the trim, and we want you to trim the nose down now." This is my first time sitting in the right seat of this airplane, and I'm so I'm I'm clicking on the trim, and we're we're going to land this airplane. So now, thank you for that. Mm -hmm. I'll never forget that. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, the, the original airplane was a Martin 404, yeah. twin turboprop, no radial engines. Oh, radial. That's correct. Piston, piston, yeah. piston engines. Pistons, yeah. And they kept the tires very low, the pressure, low pressure. And so I remember. This to the sax section, standing by the landing gear, and one of us pointing at these tires, which are basically flat on the bottom, and he says, would you get a load of those May Pops? <laughs> May Pops. So yeah, that was it. Yeah, so yeah. tell us about your flying. Oh, um, fear. It's a funny thing. You can run from it or to it. And I, as time went on after the Air National Guard, I found myself getting more fearful in the back of airliners, and I'm going, man, this is, I'm, you know, it'd get a little bumpy, and I'd go, I don't know what I'm afraid of, but I'm scared to death here. And so I was a dear friend of mine, former musician named Bill Richmond, may he rest in peace, he just died at 93 a year ago. So um, he was a golfer, and we're out at Lakeside, and every time it was blown from the north, the pattern has them coming in right over the lakeside. And I'm looking at these guys, I'm watching these guys, and he goes, why don't you just go out and learn to fly? I'd already read Stick and Rudder, and I knew about Bernoulli, and I knew the way the thing kind of worked, but uh, I said, oh no, I'm terrified of flying. He goes, no, 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 it's a control issue. 
And I went, me? Control me? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, uh, so I did. I went out and, and uh, you know, started in a little tomahawk or a tromahawk, as they call it. Yeah. Little single engine two seat plane. And, uh, you know, t I took a lot of time. Um, I took a year to get my private pilots, a year to get my instrument rating, a year to get my multi, and a year to get my commercial. It just took a year for each one of them, did them really uh, methodically and, and, you know, because you can actually hurt somebody or get hurt if you screwed up terribly or get real unlucky. And guess what? Not afraid of flying. I love flying and it's been a wonderful experience and, you know, it, it's enriched everything because I not only is it the ultimate luxury in that you, you know, when do we leave? Well, when we get there, you know. And do, do we have to worry about baggage claim or thing getting canceled or anything? No. And no security lines. So it's all those good things, but it, then it's fun to do. It's really, really interesting to do. And it's a lot like conducting uh, to picture because, you know, when you're conducting to picture, you look at the music, you look at the clock, you look at the guys, and you look at the film. Um, and when you fly an airplane, you have a scan going the whole time, so it works really, really well. If you're a little bit ADHD, it works great, because multitasking is great for us kind of people. And if you're a little OCD. Ah, oh, stop it. If you're a little OCD, yeah, right. If you're a little OCD, <laughs> it works well, too, because it, it, it does demand precision. So oh, yeah. that's the flying deal. Man, nice. I took some lessons also, because I was afraid of flying. And that's one of the Ray Charles pilots that actually took me out. Yeah. Uh, the, the, we're getting the time. Okay, now there is a question. My name is Joe Cashier. I'm going to Thank you, Don, my classmate from uh, College Southern College. Uh, and Mike, uh, I have a question for you that I want to get clarified. I often wondered how did you and Stephen Cannell get together because there have been all kinds of checkered stories about the fact that you were at a beach and Stephen Cannell was throwing sand on your blanket. And no. I just want to get it clear, so I just please tell me so I'll know forever what the right story is. Yeah. Thank you very much. Quick story and then we, we can all go about our day. Uh, before I could afford to go to Hawaii, my brother and I would split a two-week rental on a house on Babel Island in the middle of the island, not on the beach, in the middle. So uh, my brother at the time was about 5'11", 230, and I was in real good shape. And we had a few cocktails on a Friday night. We were, our mother and father were supposed to come down on Saturday morning and join us, so it's, you know, great. We wake up both a little bit, you know, quiet, and we go down to the beach to stake out some territory where we're supposed to meet our mom and dad. I jump over the seawall, it's overcast, it's 7.30 in the morning, and there's a bunch of towels right where we told our mom and dad we were gonna meet. And I go, ah, oh, this is stupid. So Bud goes, no, I'm, I'll go on the other side of the pier and see how that is. And I, so he goes, and I go, eh, I'll move some towels. Uh, you know. So I start moving the towels and I hear, hey, hey, quit moving my towels. All of a sudden I look back and there's this great big B-52 
beachfront house and there's this jerk standing in the doorway with an iron jaw and a little cheroot smoking his little cigar in the morning. And I immediately don't like this guy. <laughs> I'm hungover, I'm in a bad mood. And I go, I'm not moving any towels. What are you talking about? And he goes, quit moving my towels. Now he gets really excited. And I believe he called me an asshole or something. And I went, okay. So I start to walk. I jump over the seawall. I start to walk up his path. And the closer I get, the bigger this guy gets. <laughs> and I'm going, ooh, this might be... This might be a handful, and I'm thinking, okay, well, am I going to talk to him? Am I going to hit him? What am I going to do here? You know, and I get about 15 feet from him, and I hear my brother's whistle, and he goes, and he's running, and he goes, don't do it, don't do it, champ, <laughs> champ don't. And my nickname, champ, don't do it, champ, don't hit him, don't. So I go, okay, I stop in my tracks. My brother says, stop, stop. This guy's looking at me. I'm looking at this guy. My brother comes up and says. Hang on a second. He said, how big are you? I go, six, two and a half. He goes, what do you weigh? He goes, 195. He said, well, he's 5'8", and he weighs about 165. He said, but he's tenacious. He said, he's real tenacious. And he said, but, you know, he'll probably be okay. But in case you hurt him, I'm going to put you in the hospital. No kidding. You're going to go. You're going to need an ambulance to leave here. I'm, I will put you in the hospital. My little brother, you can't hurt him. Guy looks at Bud, looks at me, looks at Bud, looks at me, and goes, right, goes back in the house. My brother and I turn, walk down his little pathway, and I immediately, what an idiot, what a jerk, come on, this isn't the valley, you can't do this, you've got to be grown up, you're music director of the Andy Williams show, for God's sakes, when are you going to stop this bullshit? You know, you're not even a tough guy. You just pretend, you know, your big brother was, well, I felt terrible. I went home, told my wife about it. I said, God, what a jerk I was. I lied. I just was, oh, it's just so bad. So cut 11 o'clock, our parents show up. We go down there, his little kids in a playpen, his wife, his parents. I go, oh, this is awful. This is terrible. I go right over, drop the flag on myself. I go, my fault. I, there's an explanation. I was a little hungover, but I was completely wrong. I lied. I'm, he goes, there's tons of room for everybody. I don't own the beach, really. I don't. So we start talking. He goes, what do you do? And I tell him, oh, my God, I love that music. I, classical Gasm, the first edition. Oh, my God, that's great. I said, what do you do? He goes, well, I'm trying to write scripts and sell scripts, but the truth is, you know, my dad's and mom are rich, but I don't have any money, you know? And I went, really? And I said, well, I'd like to read some of your stuff. So I, over the next few days, we do sports together. Guy's really good athlete, can throw the football, and blah, blah, blah. I'm reading something funny as hell. And he said to me, you know, if I ever sell a script and can con convince a producer, I think your stuff would be, your music would be great in TV. I went, I'm in a rock and roll business, man. I'm in, I'm in rock and roll records. I don't, TV, why would I want to screw around with TV? Little speaker, you know? Yeah, <laughs> little speaker. Then, that's how I met Steve Cannell. And of wow. Course, for every, you know, for, until his death, all we did was give each other shit and have a great time and do a whole bunch of stuff together and then have a wonderful life together. I want to thank my post. Scott, thank you guys. This has been amazing. 
Thank you for listening to another ASMAC podcast. We welcome your feedback at www.asmac.org. This is Kim Richmond, the president of ASMAC, and on behalf of the board, I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, master classes, First Wednesday's workshops, and our annual Golden Score Awards Banquet. For a complete list of our podcasts and DVDs, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to board member Andrew Kessler for recording this talk. Editing was done by myself to prepare for broadcast.